All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have Joe Rust and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. My brother Jeff is off for this weekend's Money Wise program. But if you would like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And for new listeners to the Money Wise program, if you're not familiar with us, Davidson Capital Management, we are a registered investment advisor in our 33rd year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's MoneyWise program, I would typically turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. But since he's off for this weekend show, I will take it over. So in the week just past, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 4%. The S&P 500 was up 3.8%, and the NASDAQ was up 3.6%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 17.5%. The S&P 500 is up 25.5%, and the NASDAQ is up 21.3%, and all those numbers are without dividends. So, great week. You know, great recovery from the words have consequences week from the uh, Federal Reserve's comments to Congress uh, two Tuesdays ago. And from the Omicron variant knee-jerk reaction on Black Friday. Gave a whole new meaning to Black Friday uh, when that new variant was reported. But as we have heard, as the cases have been showing up here in the United States, Uh, They're showing to be very mild. I've heard from the CDC, which announced on Friday that only one person has gone to the hospital. They don't have reports of any deaths and the symptoms have been very mild. But what I also found interesting is three quarters of the people that have come down with the Omicron variant are vaccinated. So it should be no surprise that this past week that Pfizer came out and said, well, you get the two vaccines and if you get the third, Guess what? Now you're protected from Omicron. It's just, it's, it's so two, ironic. Buy two, get one free. That's right. Buy two, get one free. You know. But that's a good thing. I mean, obviously, as the virus is mutating, it might become more transmissible, But although the CDC is saying that it, it appears that Omicron isn't as contagious as the Delta variant, and so far, so good, it's not showing to be as dangerous. So for those folks that are vaccinated, definitely get your booster to get that extra layer of protection. Or those that aren't just, you know, do whatever you you can do to stay safe. And but the good thing as far as when it comes to the stock market is that this is favorable news for the stock market as we have been recovering from the black market kind of snap, little snap correction. And then what occurred two Tuesdays ago with the Federal Reserve's comments, because the S&P 500 on Friday 
closed at a record high. Now the NASDAQ has a little bit further to go to get back to a record high that we saw the first week of November. And the same thing for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, still not back to an all-time high. So the only thing really remaining on the calendar for the rest of this year is going to be occurring Tuesday and Wednesday of, of this coming week with the Federal Reserve and their policy meetings. Now, most likely on Wednesday, we're probably going to hear the Federal Reserve come out and talk about uh, accelerating the pace of their tapering. I think right now, what are they, about $15 billion that they're drawing back? There, there's time. even so there, talk about the doubling the rate. Yeah, so we could see them announce a $30 billion reduction in bond purchasing, which obviously would end the taper a lot sooner. And so that's really the main last hurdle the markets have to get through to the end of the year. And so for any investors that are having a higher level of cash on the sidelines, I would definitely kind of cool your jets and let's hear what comes out of the FOMC meeting Tuesday and Wednesday. And of course, they'll make the announcement on Wednesday, not looking to make any changes to the interest rate policy. Of course, it's just how fast or how big is the taper going to be? Well, if, if Jeff was on the show, he, he might make the case that this could free the Fed up to increase rates quicker than maybe the middle part of next year. Well, there's a lot of different schools of thoughts. I mean, I, I've read from economists. Some economists, Joe, think that we might not see any interest rate increases next year. I, I'm definitely not in that camp, but there's definitely some analysts and some economists on the street looking into 2022 saying that they might not, we might not see an interest rate increase. I think we're, we could be destined for a two to possibly three interest rate increase. But even if they raise interest rates three times, let's say they take the overnight rate to three quarters of 1% to 1%. Now that's the, that's the Fed funds rate. That's the overnight rate. The big question is how the market is going to react to it. it, it well, what Jeff and I were looking at interest rate numbers the other day. It took us about 40 years to get to this historic low on interest rates. Mm-hmm. And Jeff and I were talking about it. Well, how long is it going to get ta- going to take to get back to that historic high in interest rates? And will we ever see it? Meaning rates Are we talking about might be staying lower like- for longer. Joe, are you talking about historically rates like we saw back in the 80s? That's, when, when, when a mortgage Think was about what rates were the 80s and we're 2022. They were double digits. It took us 40 years to get here. How long would it get, take us to get back up to 10%? It may take us a long time. Well, so the lower for longer. If, if, yeah, but, but, but if we ever got there, and remember, back in the early 80s when we had double-digit 30-year treasuries, we also had almost double-digit inflation. Yes. So when, when, you, when you back out inflation, you had interest rates that are really 3 4 5%. For the 30-year Treasury back in the 80s, when you backed out seven to nine percent monetary inflation, so I, I've always been in the camp that it's going to take interest rates much longer, and they're going to stay lower for much longer, because you have to remember if the Treasury market in the United States is the only riskless investment in the world, and we're considered the bastion of safety for all investors, when you still see you know trillions of dollars invested in negative interest rate sovereign debt outside the borders of the United States, if we're paying one and a half, two percent, two and a half percent on a ten-year treasury for them, for for foreign investors, that's actually a really good deal if they're staring down the barrel at a negative interest rate in their own govern in their own sovereign government debt. So that's what's that is what is also led to a compression of interest rates much lower for longer here in the United States, which of course penalizes bond investors. It penalizes savers. 
I mean, any person listening to this program knows that the interest you'd get on a savings account doesn't even amass enough in one year to even buy yourself a cup of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> I did I mean, that this morning, I admit. But, I mean, that, that's, that's the whole situation with the interest rate environment. But even if the Fed raised rates two to three times next year, which they most likely will, the big question is how violent is the market? How violent are the algorithms going to react on the downside? And so you have to ask yourself the question as an investor, what are you doing in your portfolio now to prepare for this volatility going into next year? Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's MoneyWise program, just continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from last week, Before we went to break again, talking about the Federal Reserve, and I know dad hates when we talk about the Federal Reserve. It's been more than 15 seconds. It just raises his blood pressure. But looking in in our crystal ball, looking into next year, it's really going to be Fed watch really all year long. I think now that we've gotten, we're still gathering data on the Omicron variant and we're going to be dealing with COVID for the rest of our lives. It's not going away. Well, real quickly, and I didn't mention the last segment, the trend for COVID going from a pandemic looks it looks pretty realistic. This will be an endemic, and it'll be something that's not as major that we can treat. And we're not going, which should add some clarity to the market next year. And it will be about fundamentals. It will be about interest rates. It will be about looking at your portfolio and figuring out what is inflation going to look like and what's it going to do to earnings on your on on the underlying holdings in your portfolio. Those are some of the things you got to you have to consider when you're going into next year. Well, and, and, I, and, and, and I think with how long this kind of pullback, how quickly it occurred from the, from the new variant, and we know as the virus continues to mutate, we're going to continue to see more and more variants coming, and it, it, it's going to be here for the rest of our lives. I mean, I, I would love to be able to put it finally in the rear view and it be like a seasonal flu, but I think we're still several years away from that. And so I, as time goes on, the market will be able to absorb more of this information about the variants and not have the kind of huge knee-jerk reaction like we had on Black Friday after Thanksgiving. But going into next year, it, the, like you said, Joe, the primary focus is going to be on the, the, the Federal Open Market Committee. It's going to be about the Fed. It's going to be about their policy. When is the tapering going to end? When is the first interest rate going to increase? And it's really, again, going to be data-dependent because some information that came out on Friday, we had the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, that came out on Friday, and it was up eight-tenths of one percent, which is one-tenth hotter than what the market was anticipating. And looking at the number year-over-year year, from November to November, we're looking, at, uh, we're looking at a consumer price index that is now up 6.8%. So this is the highest inflationary rates we've seen since 1982. So, you know, we've got decades where we haven't seen inflation this hot. Now, if you strip out volatile food and fuel, 
It was up a half of 1% for November and stripping out food and fuel year over year inflation consumer price index was at 4.9%. And so this is going to be the big focus with the Federal Reserve when it comes to their monetary policy. Now, if the Fed has two main mandates, that's price stability and employment. Well, we talked about the employment picture on last weekend's show. When you look at the U6, which is what I consider true, the true unemployment number, we're at 7.3%. Now, before the pandemic even started, going January, February of 2020, we saw U6 around the 67 6.6% level, which is really was at an historic low. So from an employment standpoint, the Fed is almost there, even though every one of our listeners still sees now hiring signs all over the, I mean, all over the place, all over the state. So there is still employment to be had, and there's still some people that are very slow to get back into the job market. But from a statistical standpoint of what the Fed looks at from a data point, they're kind of already there. They're already there when it comes to employment. So really the question is going to be, okay, are we going to start seeing these inflationary numbers start to moderate as we get into the first and second quarter of next year. If they continue to remain elevated, it's going to force the Fed to possibly raise interest rates quicker and possibly raise it more often going into next year. And well, we it, know and we know from just past history, when the Federal Reserve turns more hawkish, meaning tighter monetary policy, the stock market doesn't react favorably to that. That's correct. And I think that's, if Jeff was here, that would be one of his biggest points of contention is sharp rises in rates. But if you look at inflation and you look at one of the drivers of inflation right now, which is the supply chain, it seems to be on some of these ports that they're starting to free up the ability uh, to, to essentially get rid of some of these transportation bottlenecks, if you will. I think that's critically important. The other two drivers of inflation, I was just thinking about it the other day, is gas. And energy, gas, the cost of gasoline. I mean, to get something from A to B, you have to use gas, and also jet fuel costs. I mean, it's it's it, it's sharply increased, and hopefully that'll abate, and that hopefully will help with some of the uh, the inflation and get it back to more more transitory, which is what Powell originally forecast even though he's removed the even though he's removed the word. Yeah, we we can't use the T word anymore. Okay, it's like the yeah. I got to well, be careful it's, it's about like, on the air, but. It's like when Dad said we can't use the F word, meaning yes, that. we can't use the, the T the, word transitory anymore. The Fed has become one of the one of the seven deadly words to not say on radio or in a <laughs> podcast. So, but but you know, I read a very interesting report this past week, Joe, talking about inflation in general. And again, all of our listeners, we're all feeling the effects of inflation. Doesn't matter who you are. Every time we go to the pump, we're feeling those effects. But I read an interesting report where several economists kind of extrapolated different components to inflation, and they divided them up between sticky and non-sticky inflationary measures. And what they actually found is the non-sticky, now non-sticky of their kind of inflation are products that have a lot more fluctuation in costs, like food and commodities sort of. Yeah, kind of more commodity-based components to the economy. And so they found that majority of the inflation that we're feeling now is primarily focused in the non-sticky side of the economy. 
these very volatile prices that are constantly changing. Yeah, like gasoline has always been volatile. It's always going to be a yes. non-sticky. But when they looked at the sticky side of inflation, this is more of your long-term durable goods, tractors, airplanes, tractor trailers, cars, things that actually last, you know, refrigerators, washing machines. They started looking at the inflationary data in the sticky side of consumer products or durable goods, and they actually found that the inflationary rates for the durable goods side or the sticky side was running between 2.3 and 2.5%. Now, that is not very high above the 2% mandate that the Fed has given themselves. And when the Fed changed the way that they calculate inflation or price, you know, price stability, they said that they will allow prices to run a little bit hotter for longer above that 2% mandate that the Fed gave themselves. So if we just focused on the sticky side of inflation, that inflation is actually kind of right in line. And if that is where our inflationary rate actually was, would this really be driving the Fed to be making any significant changes to their monetary policy from an interest rate standpoint going into next year? And I would say that it would definitely give them cover to delay raising rates. It's the non-sticky side of inflation that's really forcing their hand. And so to your point, Joe, as these bottlenecks loosen up, and as more people get back to work, and as we get more tractor trailers, we get more chassis to move these containers, as we get containers shipped back overseas and get more of these ships in port, is, you know, this could be a positive effect on the non-sticky side of inflation, which is the big, I guess, conversation that Jeff and I always well, have. The, other thing the big too, debate that we always have in our portfolio strategy meetings but really, it's it's the non-sticky side that's really causing the Fed to possibly and could possibly accelerate their hand to raising interest rates and become more hawkish in their monetary policy. Well, you talked about the U6. You talked about unemployment numbers. Also, when we start getting back to more to fuller fuller employment, labor costs hopefully they should stabilize. So you're not going to have to pay top dollar to compete for everybody because we're going to have a fuller. We're a complete labor market, and that's one of the challenges right now in, in certain industries, not every industry, but in certain industries and certain sectors, you're having to pay a lot more to get people either at a restaurant or retail or something of that nature to get work for work from. Hopefully, that will start stabilizing the first quarter, second quarter next year, which also uh, – could play into what the Fed does with interest rates. So, well, but the other thing, the, the toughest thing when it comes to wage inflation is typically when you start paying your employees higher wages, it's very hard to backtrack. It's yeah. very hard to say, oh, well, we're going to... Well, I mean, stabilize, quick accelerating, yeah, but yeah, stabilize. stabilize. Well, where, where maybe where employees won't say, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing more of a remedial task. I need $25 an hour. Well, maybe six, eight months, a year from now, that remedial task, okay, you're going to get paid $12 an hour. You can't demand... $25 an hour anymore like you could, as as you said, Joe, as more people are getting out and working. But also with these higher wages and some of this wage inflation, as inflation comes down on the non-sticky side of inflation with these consumer goods, the more volatile prices for food and fuel, those higher incomes, now the consumer is starting to feel wealthier. Now the consumer feels like they have more money because those prices have stabilized and come down while their wages stay elevated so let's pause here let's take another commercial break you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management 
We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise, guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call at our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Moneywise program, before we went to commercial break, we were just, again, talking about inflation. Uh, I don't want to say it's a dissertation, but the point that I was making before we went to break is with the higher wages that employees have been demanding to kind of get them back into the labor force, as I was saying, it's very hard for an employer to dial those wages back. So that can create and will create longer lasting wage inflation. But as the the non-sticky inflation, the food, the fuel, the more volatile prices that we see where a lot of the inflation we're feeling today is occurring, as those prices start to moderate and start to come down, then that's going to help boost the consumer to where they've been receiving higher wages and now their overall costs have been coming down and moderating, which gives them more money at the end of the month to do a lot of other things to pump into the economy. Well, and you're going into a point I wanted to talk about it. And one of the the mutual fund companies we use had their global market outlook and a 2022 playbook, if you will, for a shifting economic landscape. And two of the things that you just mentioned all right, they, they, there were two of their main themes, and they have different themes, and, and one of them was the consumers are in a really, really strong cash position, and especially in the United States, where they have about $2 trillion sitting in checking accounts right now and other short-term deposits. To your point about, about wages, people are saving more. They're going to have to spend it eventually. And the other thing is asset appreciation has been boosted per household. And, and household wealth has actually increased in the United States. And that's another factor that could mean there could be more of a tail on this bull market going into next year. Well, yeah, and, and I wanted to make the point, and I wanted to add on to that point real quick, Joe, because I read an interesting, uh, interesting study this past week talking about the end effect of the American household. Now, this information I read from several economists, they've actually calculated that the average – U.S. household has received $9,500 in total government stimulus and all these multiple forms that the government gave during the pandemic when everything was shut down, and that they have found that going into 2022, that the average household is going to have just under 11% more money per month to spend. So even though we're talking about the stock market and its, you know, and its negative reactions to the Fed becoming more hawkish and with pending interest rate increases. This doesn't take away the fact that there are still a lot of positives when it comes to the stock market and the economy. I mean, the old saying is, as goes the economy, so goes the market. Now, we're going to see shorter-term corrective moves when the Fed starts making adjustments to their monetary policy. I mean, we saw it just two Tuesdays ago when the Federal Reserve took out the word transitory and talked about speeding up the the pace of their taper, the market had quite a negative reaction. 
Well, we're going to see a similar reaction when they do finally start turning a little more hawkish and start raising interest rates into 2022. But still, when you look at the underlying economy, the underlying economy is going to continue to be picking up more steam. As all the things we talked about on the program, Joe, as the bottlenecks start to loosen up, as more people get back into the workforce, now making higher wages where we see more permanent wages. Another factor. We see houses with all this cash. And there's also a pent-up demand from the, in the housing market. There have not been nearly as many homes built as there need to be because of uh, part of it's a supply chain. So if you put those contributing factors into account, you're going to see probably some more people that have that extra income, that extra money, spending more on homes. Um, well, so, and, and then if, and then if we're in, a, in an interest rate environment that's starting to increase, that's going to be putting more pressure on consumers and families who maybe aren't in their permanent home to go and buy a home next year as long as we can start getting the supply to catch up with the demand that's the biggest biggest problem we're seeing across the country you you could make an argument people make an argument well am i going to go buy a new house because rates might go up and the 30-year fixed might go up i said historically you got to be kidding me historically rates are still going to be i would say in a a, a, a historically low and that shouldn't be an excuse to go out and buy a new house because you will not see those rates Probably for the rest of your lifetime. Well, well, Joe, for us, you know, you in your early fifties, me in my late forties, you know, we know what, what higher inter- yeah, we know what higher <laughs> interest rates look like for mortgages. But for some younger families, millennials, you know, people four percent. What's that? Yeah, Four-per- people in their early thirties, mid thirties, late twenties that that have the means to buy a house. You know, they see a six percent interest rate, they're going to lose their, they're going to blow their top. For us, that's a historically great rate. So you're right you got to look at things from a historical standpoint. But this is the biggest problem that we're having with inflation is we've got great demand. It's just the supply that's the problem. And, and there, you know, there's some times where I watch you know, certain broadcasters you know, on Fox where they talk about defla- you know, where we could be getting into a deflationary situation. And, no, this isn't the 70s. We're not going to see a situation with rising prices and decreasing demand. So we're not worried about, you know, deflationary situation or stagflation, excuse me, stagflation, which is a term I know that Sean Hannity's used several times. And I like Sean, don't get me wrong. But there I might want to spend a little bit more time with him to educate him about economics. I think you should do that. Yeah, we can have I think a you should uh, send him an email and get him on the show. But but when you but like back to your point, Joe, if you're looking at the average household receiving ninety five hundred dollars on average, they're going to have almost eleven percent more cash to spend into twenty twenty two. That's going to find its way into the economy, which is going to continue to full fuel our GDP growth. And as supply chains loosen up, that'll hopefully help bring some inflationary pressures down. So you know, I'm here to say even before we get into twenty twenty two predictions, which I know. We do typically the first show of the new year. I mean, I think, and Joe, I'm sure you would agree that we feel that we're going to see a positive stock market next year, albeit I don't think it's going to be as high from a return standpoint. We, we're not going to – I don't think any of us are going to be on record saying we're going to see 20% plus returns no. on the S&P 500. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I know a lot of big – you know, Goldman Sachs came out with their predictions. A lot of other big analyst groups have come out with their predictions, and – you know, to an homage to dad, the Abby Joseph Cohen, who was the head strategist for Goldman Sachs for a million years before she retired, she always gave the same answer every year, 10 to 11 <laughs> percent. So every analyst. Reversion to the mean. It's eventually every, every analyst I've heard this past week that's come out with their 2022 predictions, they're right in the Abby Joseph Cohen prediction model. 
10 to 11 percent. And so I'm just going to go on record even before we get to the. Are you, are you, are you making a pre-call call? I'm, I'm making a pre-call call. I think we're, I'm going to go with the Abby Joseph Cohen 10 to 11 percent, because not only do we have the Federal Reserve and their decision making on interest rate on interest rates and the monetary policy, but we also have a midterm election in 2020 where there is a extremely high, almost take it to the bank probability that the Democrats will lose control of the House, possibly the Senate, if not both. And then we're in a situation where Joe Biden is completely lame duck until 2024. And talking, you know, a little bit, shifting gears a little bit to politics, I know the CBO about this past Friday with a final score of the Build Back Better I use a little bit more colorful. It's only going to add. It's only going to add three trillion dollars to the debt, which over is about 10 50, years. But it's only over 15, ten years, Joe. Folks, only... That's fifteen percent. That's about fifteen percent of GDP. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, we're talking in the weeds with some numbers here. So that that is not a done deal yet. So, well, I, I, I can tell you this: if I know Senator Manchin from West Virginia, he was, you know. We, the Senate has to review the CBO score anyways. When it comes out with a CBO score of $3 trillion added to the, to, to the national debt, to our deficit, this is a non-starter. But I thought it was free. I thought it wasn't going to cost anybody anything. It's not. I thought it was. You're right, Joe. I thought I mean, it was free. We're, we're, not, we're just talking about what do we think going into the economy, what impact would that have if it's passed? There would be more stimulus money. And, but, and but honestly, I don't see how that's going to. Yeah, I, I don't see any version of this build back better getting passed anytime soon. And they're going to be hard pressed. The left is going to be hard pressed going into next year. I mean, we already know that they're going to be debating this into January and February. But unless they have massive overhauls to the program and spending a heck of a lot less, I don't see these changes coming down the pipeline because right now the way that it's written, Joe, we would have the highest corporate tax rate in the world or, or not, not the highest corporate tax rate, excuse me, the highest total individual combined tax rate. I mean, if you live in California, New York City, I mean, you could be paying up to 60 percent of your earned income to the state and local government and the federal government. I mean, that, that, that's that's a non-starter. That's a non-starter. So I don't see any version right now of the Build Back Better getting passed, which, again, clears the pathway to continue to fuel the economy to push the market higher. But there is definitely going to be more fits and starts next year. I mean, every conversation I've had with clients the past week or two, I'm just preparing clients mentally about seeing much more volatility in their portfolio and the market next year. I concur, and I think in the next second we can get into a little bit about know what you own and, and emotion, what we're looking at from a portfolio. Yeah, and keeping your emotions in check and, and making and talking about what we're looking at going into next year maybe on the portfolio side. And what all of our listeners should be doing in their portfolios and going to an homage here to you, Joe, of knowing what you own and why you own it and making sure your portfolio is properly diversified and it's time to maybe start battening down some of the hatches on your portfolio. So we'll pick up this topic on the other side of the break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. 
Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, and as we alluded before we went to commercial break, if you're just tuning in, just let's talk a little bit about what we've been doing in our portfolios. We talked about it last week, you know, spend the entire month of December. Now, we're constantly vetting all the securities in our portfolio, whether it's exchange-traded funds, no-load mutual funds, the individual stocks. We're constantly doing checks and balances, making sure that the securities we have in our portfolio are adhering to why we have them in there. And this really goes to any investor listening to this program that gets complacent. And when we have years like this year, when you got the S&P 500 up over 20, 25%, the, the Dow up over 17 the NASDAQ over 21 when you get your monthly statements, they're positive numbers. You don't give your portfolio much thought. And this is the complacency that can, again, add a lot of volatility and be what, very dangerous quick question, Kyle. for the success what, of your retirement. If we finish where we are right now, what would the S&P have averaged the last three years? A little over 20%? Uh, well, let's see. Last year was up 18.4. I'd have to go back and look at 19. I don't have it off the top of my head. But it, it would be you know, definitely well it's, into the solid double digits. You know, one of the highest runs – that we've seen going back to the late 1990s. I, I think it's about 20%, but think about what are you going to do after three really historic runs in the market, and why would you not look at your portfolio and do a review and make sure you're doing everything you possibly can to, quote-unquote, bulletproof your portfolio? Or so, as I call it, bad down the hatches. Well, that's, again, that's what we're talking about to all the listeners is not getting complacent in your portfolio just because you continuously are seeing positive results. And now, Obviously, for our clients, they hire us to be that money management team, to be making the day-in and day-out decisions in their portfolio, making the adjustments, making security selections and deselections and asset allocations, actively managing the portfolio. But for some of our other listeners that are working with the financial sales side of the business, your traditional stockbroker or financial advisor that doesn't have discretionary control and is not a money manager you also have to stay vigilant. You can't rely on your investment professional to be watching your back if they're not an active portfolio manager. You have to put that onus on yourself. And so don't get complacent just seeing those positive monthly results on your statement. You need to take a look at what you own, understand why you own it, and see how you're allocated in what you own. I mean, I've reviewed portfolios where the portfolio was living and dying by two or three individual stocks. And yeah, those stocks are doing a fantastic job this year, but that's not always the case. Stocks run in seasons. They go through cycles. And we talk about, and Jeff brought it up in the last show or a couple of shows ago, you look at one particular asset class, which is large cap growth. A lot of these large cap growth funds are going to have are going to be overweight either Amazon, Apple, Facebook, maybe not Google, Microsoft. Microsoft. They typically so it's not they typically just all are. They typically correct. All so, are. 
mutual funds inherently are diversified. All right. We agree they're diversified. But when you look at a situation where we always say don't own more than 5% of any one stock, there are multiple mutual funds that might do that. They Sometimes they just can't help it. It gets to be like a Titanic. They can't move it without impacting the portfolio significantly. So you need to take a comprehensive look at, at, at your portfolio. And, and, one, and one thing, no, that's okay. And one thing, and that's a huge point. I mean, that's a huge point. You have to go and you have to look at the top 10 holdings of any mutual fund that you own or even exchange-traded fund you own and make sure they're not violating the 5% rule. And, you know, we have a large cap growth fund in particular that's got a fantastic long-term track record. But the thing that's making us nervous in the portfolio has become so highly concentrated. So all the work that we've been doing this month is we've been kind of preparing the portfolios for a rebalance going into the new year where we're kind of putting a hard and fast rule that we do not want any positions in our portfolio to have a larger than 2% allocation to any one particular stock. And so because of the software and our, our analytical tools that we have available to us, which most individual investors don't have, we're able to go in there and model our portfolios of what we want them to look like in the new year to make sure that we don't have high concentrations in these tech names. We're still participating. We're still participating in some of the higher beta, higher PE price earning multiple names, but at a much smaller percentage than how our portfolios are currently allocated this year because we're preparing the portfolio. This is how we're battening down the hatches of our portfolio going into next year where we feel highly confident and it's highly probable we're going to be seeing a lot more volatility and we're going to see a market that's not going to be up 25%. It's it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Kyle, today because we've been talking about the last two weeks, all right, balancing out your portfolio, making sure you have more of an equally weighted strategy with your individual securities, and then looking at the fixed income side, all right, if rates are going to go up, are you going to be long against the yield curve? What is your fixed income part of your portfolio look like if you're at a target date fund the odds are very very good you're shoved in a bunch of intermediate bonds you may have some high yield bonds even, in even there. longer even longer maturity bonds which it, is going to kill the fixed income and, side and i was reading portfolio. this article today and or actually friday and what did i see two of the recurrent two of the themes from investment ideas are balanced view on equities shorter duration and fixed income oh where have we heard that before and this is a manager that we use <laughs> so you know, it, it, I'm not saying we have all the, the, the great ideas in the world, but it's great to know that we've been talking about this and all of a sudden we get an article or a forecast or an outlook that's backing up what we're already thinking. Well, I so. think what it, go, what it goes to, I mean, being in our 33rd year business and with the combined experience of you, me, and Jeff, north of 70 years of being in the trenches, you know, we have to rely on a lot of our experience of, of navigating these waters because the market is always the market is always unpredictable but the market is very predictable in how it reacts to certain events in the market and the fed turning more hawkish is typically a negative response with all of the changes when you're doing this know what you own in a portfolio review and you're paying a fee which our max fee is one percent all right what are you paying for? Are you paying for complacency or are you, or are you paying for something as proactive or somebody that's got your back and making sure they're taking the steps to look forward and make sure you're protected in your portfolio? Well, it's, it's again, active management versus passive management. And even owning a passive index fund, it can still be actively managed when it comes to an allocation strategy, which is what we're doing in our asset builder programs, because we do have our index base, 
for each and every one of our portfolios, but how are we allocating the dollars amongst the multiple sub-asset classes going into next year? And that's, again, what we're working on. So know what you own, and if you don't, this is when you take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis. You can reach us in our office, 800-275-2162. With that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break. So we're going to take the break, go into the news, and when we come back from the top of the hour, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving in to the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com, or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. If you missed the first hour of MoneyWise, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past MoneyWise programs. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, as we like to do in most of the second hours uh, of every weekend's MoneyWise program is going to investor education. And there was a great quiz that came out in the Wall Street Journal that I, I think it's fantastic for investor education. I think it's a, it's a great way to really get all of our listeners to be thinking about their retirement if they're planning. And, and of course, everyone's working towards retirement or is possibly currently in retirement. And so, Jeff, I know you and I wanted to focus a lot of this second hour um, going into this quiz because I think it's just chalked full of a lot of great information. And, you know, as we get started, you know, what what if before you retired you had to pass a test first, kind of like a driver's test, you know, something that gauges how much you know about savings targets, medical bills, estate planning, and a few other fundamental issues? Because I guess it's kind of like getting your high school diploma. Maybe we call this this is the way you get your retirement diploma. Is you have to you have to get at least a passing grade. And we'll I guess we'll, we'll go with seventy five percent. Seventy five percent is passing grade on this quiz. So I think we just kick it off with question number one. Now, research by Fidelity Investments recommends that workers should aim to save what multiple of their ending annual salary at age sixty seven in order to meet basic income needs in retirement. Now, this question has been – we've heard so many different – is it four times? Is it five times? Is it ten times? Now, in this quiz, we have four potential answers to that question. A is four times salary. 
B is six times the salary, C is eight times the salary, or D, ten times your annual salary at age 67 in order to meet basic income needs in retirement? And the answer to that question is answer C, eight times your current salary. Now, the math is based in part on a worker beginning to save at age 25 and living to 92 years old. So a household with an annual income of $100,000 will need a minimum of $800,000 to meet basic income needs in retirement. But there is a big but here. There's always a catch. (laughs) This is the catch. This is a conservative estimate according to the National Institute on Retirement Security. By contrast, though, Aon Hewitt, which is a human resource consulting firm, estimated that 11 times salary is needed at age 65. So in that same example, you would need $1.1 million in order to meet your basic income needs if you were to retire at age 67. These numbers to me, I I must say, and I know you guys deal with it more on a day-to-day basis, but these numbers are pretty absurdly large, honestly. Eight hundred thousand dollars. Well, think about eight hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Now remember, when when we started working, and I'm from this group, we thought you were doing well if you made ten thousand dollars a year back in the late sixties. It's called inflation, Papa Son. I, I know that, but but, but when you see this number, uh, eight hundred thousand dollars, I I don't know what the percentage would be of people that actually would have saved this for my generation. But it's got to be a lot smaller than what these numbers show in the survey. And so I guess what I'm saying is I wish sometimes we wouldn't throw a number out quite that. I mean, that's just a absurdly intimidating number. Well, remember, the part of this quiz is to set goals for oneself. And that's and that's one of the biggest problems that Americans face and pre-retirees face in this day and age is paying themselves first and preparing for retirement. That's why quizzes like this, that's why we do these educational hours on the Money Wise program like we do, is to get people to start thinking in terms of their retirement and have I saved enough? Am I doing enough towards my retirement? Uh, And if I'm not, I need to really get on the ball. But don't think that if you're age 55 and you've saved very, very little, that your retirement's completely shot. I mean, again, you have to get on it. I'm going to have to somewhat agree with Dad, and I'm going to just throw out a couple of examples. Our grandparents, our grandparents didn't have $800,000 when they retired, and they they lived. Actually, actually my, my, my grandfather probably did have well, $800,000. But, but, I, but I'm retired. thinking about your parents yes. and, no, mom, no, and mom's no, parents. No, I'm, th- no, I'm, I'm no, talking about true. here in the last 25 years. Yes, yes. No, that's true. And they had a, and they had a great retirement. I think what what I, what Dad and I are kind of maybe headed in the direction here, Kyle is. I, when, I think when, this number no, 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 scares no, no, people. Well, I, and it does. It is a scary number. It, but it is used to scare people to get them to think about. But, their but we've also we've also seen a, a movement from the fin, the legacy distribution system, the financial legacy distribution system, to say that investors should use a maximum withdrawal rate of, what, only 4% per year? And we think that that's awfully low, and we think the reason they set it at 4% is, one, so that they can continue to collect their high fees and expenses, and two, to keep the bar as low as possible to keep as much money on their on their in their 
care and control, if you will, so they could keep their high fees and expenses. And maybe this is another way of saying, okay, we can keep, we get people to save more money by putting this kind of information out so that we can, again, collect more fees and expenses from folks. Okay. So question number two, a popular rule of thumb states that retirees will need 70 to 80% of their pre-retirement income in later life. Some of the best research into replacement ratios by Aon Hewitt and Georgia State University have found that a good benchmark is A, 65%, B, 75%, C, 85%, or D, 95%. Now, the answer is C, 85%. This is one case where the rule of thumb isn't far off the mark. In its own study of replacement ratios, the Social Security Administration has noted that households typically need less income later in life because income taxes are lower, people no longer need to save for retirement, and work-related expenses are reduced or completely eliminated. That said, the best way to identify one's replacement ratio is to draw up a detailed budget for later life, unfortunately. Well, with that, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing this quiz. Think you're ready to retire? And we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or receive a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And all emails can be sent to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Dot com. So before we went to the last commercial break, I was on uh, question number two of the quiz, kind of what is the rule of thumb of how much income you need to replace in retirement, and the answer was uh, 85% of your current income would need to be replaced in retirement. Dad, I know that uh, there was something you wanted to add to that figure. Well, well, again, I think this number is too high. I think it's a scary number. And, I, you know, when they throw out these big numbers like this, I don't know that this motivates people. It's almost like people throw their hands up. Because you think it's too overwhelming? It's just too overwhelming. Now, this would be different if this if we did a quiz for 28-year-old people after they've been out in the world I mean, this no, is, I agree. This, this is who should be taking the quiz. So, in high school, maybe, and you know, in a high school finance class, which unfortunately they don't teach in high school anymore, uh, you know, personal finance class, or teach it freshman finance basics one hundred and one should be a prerequisite course that you have to take as part of your general studies in your first two years in college. Right. This would be right. a great quiz. Let's to take. flashback. I'm in the you know I'm right in front of the baby boomers. So when I get into the corporate world there in the late 60s and get into it heavy in the 70s, we have a pension plan. I'm not contributing to this pension plan. The old defined benefit plan. And, and I'm going to have this pension plan at age 65. You know, and every year I get a statement showing me what it is. But the problem was every two or three years I'm changing jobs. And so I end up with no retirement until we finally come out with a 401K. And so now we do have a situation where young people can carry this 401K with them Wherever they go. Wherever they go. And but, so, but they have to participate. But they have to participate. And so what I'm saying is some of this throwing out these big numbers, I, 
I fear that most of the people, the baby boomers, are the first 10 years of the baby boomers. They're done. They were in these same plans. They didn't start their 401ks until the 80s. There's no way in the world they've got these kind of numbers. They just aren't going to have these kind of numbers. Not, not the majority of the people. It's almost as if these first two questions are assuming that the retirees are have kids that are still teenagers and haven't gone to college yet, and they just bought their house two years before, and they have a 28 years left on their mortgage, and they got two brand-new cars yeah. in, in the garage. You know, in the real world, most of the, most of the people who had, when they retire – their kids are out of college. Their house is probably paid off or nearly paid off, and they have two cars in the garage that are paid for. And the reason I say is because we see these folks every day, mm-hmm. and and they don't. And the, the typical retiree or person that's getting ready to retire comes to us and says, "Oh, my house is paid off. My cars are paid off. My kids are out of school. No credit card my, debt, and no credit card debt." And, and, and they and they've prepared properly. They they took the proper steps of paying themselves first. But usually, Dad, they, these folks that we see have the combination of the traditional pension, like they you're have talking both. about, and the four hundred one k. Now, you know, and what's typical is that the pensions usually about half of their retirement savings, and then the four hundred one k is the second part. So is of it, their retirement savings. is is it bad to to want to overshoot to have no, a million dollars retirement? No, it, is is it bad to want to have seventy or eighty percent of your current uh, income in retirement going up twenty years? No, that's why not why not overestimate and shoot for the stars because if you come up a little bit short, you'll still be most likely okay. But but with all this said, again, if you are in your 50s, early 50s, mid 50s, and you haven't saved that much, we're not telling you to stop saving for no, retirement. No, no. We're saying that you need to hit the pedal to the metal and save as much as you possibly can. But also, like Jeff was saying, focus on your consumer debts. Fo- you know, focus on you know reducing loans, expenses. Reducing expenses because see that's another key to having a more comfortable retirement is by lowering your overhead. And the lower your overhead and the more money you've saved and the cheaper your cost of living is, the further your money is going to last. And one other thing that was in here that I hear you talk about all the time to people thinking about retirement is getting this budget, sitting down with your spouse or your significant other and setting these budgets out and seeing really what are you going to need. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, nobody really knows what they're going to need 15 years from now. But I always say take like the last six, maybe eight months and average it and just see what you're spending. But I think also it's an exercise of opening your eyes up to how much you actually are spending. Because I think, Dad, some folks don't really pay that much attention. You know, I can tell you I budget with, with my wife like a maniac. I am a budget maniac, and I'm constantly on top of what my free cash flow is, what money's coming in and out of the door, keeping track of all of that to the penny. And I've been, and I've been uh, you know, blessed to have a wife that does it exactly the way that I do it. And so it makes our, our house a very happy home because we never have to argue about budgets or money ever, which is nice. So question number three. Question number three. Jeff. What percentage of surveyed workers aged 55 and above said they or their spouse have tried to calculate how much they will need to save to live comfortably in retirement. A, 34%, B, 44%, C, 54%, or D, 64%. 
And the correct answer is C. Only about half of workers approaching retirement have done a savings needs calculation, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. One encouraging development is that that figure from January of the beginning of the year is up forty-two. It was up from forty-two percent in two thousand and three. So, the good news is is that more people are taking the bull by the horns, if you will, mm-hmm. and sitting down and and doing this save this this uh, savings need calculation. Well, I just think that again, this is something that everyone can do. And I hope that we're part of getting that number up. Absolutely. And, and as we've said on this show, previous shows, as many years as we've been doing is there's a ton of free calculators online, a ton for you to be able to project, you know, what potential retirement income you need. Am I saving enough right now based on what I've currently saved and what expenses I have? Utilize the Internet for all of these free calculators. I found a website, I wish I had it written down, that has a gazillion free calculators and you can spend all day having fun with calculations and the computer program does everything for you and it's free of charge also one other thing i didn't say i think the 92 is really a ridiculously high number as far as living yes i i I don't if you look at the actuarial charts though dad right now someone age 65 they have a better than 50 percent chance to live well into their 80s yeah uh, with modern advances in medicine so uh, you can disagree with it, but I the totally disagree. Are there. I think that I mean there is very few people are going to live to be ninety two. Very very few. I would disagree with you on that, but <laughs> that's what makes this show so fun. So question number four: Among workers age fifty five plus, what percentage think they need to save quarter of a million dollars or more for retirement, and what percentage have already saved that amount or more? And the answer is 54%, about half of the 55-plus demographic thinks a nest egg of at least 250000 not including the value of their home or any pension, is needed later in life, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. But unfortunately, fewer than one in four, or less than 25%, have reached that goal. More sobering still is 36% of this age group report having saved less than $10,000. So here's where I'm coming from. We throw out a number of 800000 in question number one. We come back here on question number four, and we're saying... But that's 800000 based on a $100,000 household income, Dad. So if you uh, make okay, $50,000, it's $400,000. But what I'm saying here is we, we can't even get more than one in four people to have $250,000. I know. That's why we're doing this survey, to no. really get people to start thinking. And it's kind of a, not, I don't want to say scare tactic, but it kind of is to, to, to wake people up that maybe are not on that savings bandwagon. Well, see, and, and debt reduction bandwagon. A quarter of a million dollars sounds like a lot of money until you think you're going to live 18 years plus plus past the age of 65, all of a sudden you put 20 years into $250,000. That's not a lot of money That's about $12,500 a year. You're not going to be on any grand a month. Yeah, that's not going to get you anywhere. So that's that's why when we're talking these numbers, this is the more sobering number to me. I mean, see, the 800 number just goes over my head. What I want to focus on and what our listeners will focus on is a lot of people think $250,000 is a lot of money for retirement. It's not. Not if you live 15, 20 years in it retirement. It is not. And yet 
it is a quarter million dollars, which ain't hay. No, so, no, it's not. And so you've got to think in terms of the budget. You've got to think in terms of your how many years you're, you think you're going to live. You've got to watch your actuarials and see where they are, and you have to plan accordingly. You think people are going to live to be in their 90s. No, 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 no. They're statistically, I mean, these are I'm statistics just, I'm spouting. I'm just saying 250 is woefully short if you're living to be 92. No, that that's that's absolutely true. And only one in four have got that number. That's well. No, and, and what's what's even worse though? This is thirty six percent of of age fifty five plus. Thirty six percent of this group have reported to have saved less than ten thousand dollars. Now that that is a sobering statistic. Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. Going to the news. When we come back, we'll be continuing. So you think you're ready to retire quiz, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after the news. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so we're continuing the quiz that came out of the wall street journal think you're ready to retire that's the title of the uh, of the article in the quiz, and we've gotten to question number five. Now, question number five is: What is the average age at which current retirees say they actually retired, and what is the expected retirement age of current workers? Now, the answer, according to the Gallup poll published in May, found that the average retiree stopped working at age 61, and that's up from 57 in 1993, and the average worker currently expects to retire at age 66, up from age 60 in 1995. Giving your nest egg a boost isn't the only benefit from delaying retirement. Gallup also found that individuals age 60 to 69 who work have slightly better emotional health than those who don't work. I think since 2008, I have been making the statement that I thought that the re- one of the reasons why uh, unemployment, the unemployment rate seems to be staying at a higher level than it might, might have been in uh, recoveries past, if you will, is because of this, is because of the average worker working longer. I like the way that you put it, like a domino effect. That yeah, last yeah. domino hasn't fallen I, I, I off. I think he's right on it. I think he's because, right on it. Because if we've, got, if we've got 36% of the 55-plus age demographic that have saved less than $10,000 for retirement, how can they actually retire? The answer is that they can't. Unless they can live strictly off of off Social, Social Security. Security. Well, and you can't start taking Social Security. You're 62, and you're saying no. the number right now is 61. And for Kyle, for me, it's 65. Well, what I, I mean, what, what, was, what was amazing, though, I think, in this last question, though, is that the average age of current retirees... They stopped at 61. They Which, retired at they 61 retired before they before could get, they could get, get Social, Social Security. Security. And now and now workers are currently thinking about age 66. I mean, I which think... Would, it, which would I, be after the majority of them start 
being able to collect. And, and here's something else that's interesting about this statistic. Remember now that the people that are in and around my age didn't get a 401k until the 80s. So they worked 10, 12, 14 years before a 401k even existed. That's true. And, and, and really, IRAs had not been around that long. And so mm-hmm. what you're seeing here is that the people who have actually retired are those few people that stayed with a corporation, did not job switch, and the corporation exists. You know, in my case, almost every, you know, corporation I work for is no longer in business. And their pensions had to get turned over to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and those folks have enough unfunded liabilities to handle strictly from the airline industry alone. So I find it interesting that that my age group that's retired, they said that they retired at age 61. So that tells me that they were a government worker, they were in the military, uh, they, they had some type of public service, or they were fortunate enough to have worked for a corporation that stayed in business, and they didn't job switch. Number six, what percentage of surveyed workers say they plan to continue working for pay in later life, and what percentage of current retirees say they have worked for pay? Now, the answer to that is it's among the biggest disconnects in retirement planning. The large number of current workers who anticipate earning a paycheck in later life and the relatively small percentage of retirees who actually have done so, 69% plan to work later, uh, plan to work in retirement, while 25% have worked for, uh, say they have worked for pay in, in retirement. So, I mean, that when 69% are planning to work in retirement, but in actuality only 25% do. So if you think, well, I haven't done a great job saving for my retirement. When I finally retire, I'll go get a part-time side job and, and earn money that way. Well, this this survey has found out that a lot of people plan to do that, but very few actually go out and do it. Number seven, what percentage of U.S. households are at risk of not having enough savings to maintain their living standards in retirement? Now, A, 33%, B, 43%. C, 53%, or D, 63%. Now, the answer is C, 53%. And that figure has climbed nine percentage points between 2007 and 2010, according to the National Retirement Risk Index. Now, among the reasons for the increase are the bursting of the housing bubble, falling interest rates, and the gradual increase in Social Security's full retirement age. And the approved, if painful, solution for reducing that risk is save more, Reduce expenses. So we're just talking about and hang on to your current job for as long as possible. But see, this number is too low. We just said only one in four is saving two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So then I no 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 yeah yeah one in so how could only fifty three how is it that fifty three percent have enough savings? That can't be. The number should be 26, 25. This number is not consistent with the other number. Well, you're going to have to call the National no, Retirement no. Risk Index what at the I, Center what, for what Retirement saying, Research and tell them that. But what I'm saying, these are two separate studies. This is not done by the same people. And what I'm saying here is when you start looking at these different studies, everyone has different answers. they got different numbers. And what we see, because we are on the front lines, what we're seeing is that we're seeing the few we're seeing that one in four that has saved mm-hmm. that has got this money but 
you've got this other group that are relying on Social Security, and we can't even get our politicians to discuss fixing it. That's right. When, and there's enough. Uh, and, and, and now we're we're embarked. Get politics. Now we're embarked on the greatest adventure any of us has seen since Medicare in the '60s, and that's now the Affordable Care Act, which it could be the biggest misnamed act in the history of this country. You mean it should be called the Unaffordable Unaffordable Care Act, act. Health Act? I mean, we don't know, <laughs> and so we're on this. We're right on the cusp of this new horizon, which is the most important thing for seniors now they tell us as seniors that our medicare is is going to stay the same well excuse me if all of a sudden i'm not concerned because i heard the president say if you want to keep your health care you can and now we've learned this week that's not true only if your plan was in existence prior to the 2010 deadline so moving on to question number eight if you retire at age 65 what percentage of your life can you expect to live in retirement and dad you kind of alluded to this a few segments ago let me get to the answer hold hold your horses there (laughs) hold my water 14 percent b 17 percent c 20 percent or d 23 percent and the answer is d 23 percent the average life expectancy for a 65-year-old is 19.1 years, which means the average American will spend close to one quarter of his or her life in retirement. Again, the key as to why you have to save for retirement. And remember, we now have that giant rat that's gone through the snake that's coming out with the baby boomers that has skewed all of the numbers all my life in every day, how many more are retiring? And we're getting ready to change health care for everyone in the country. You lost me with the rat through no, the I'm snake. Just, I'm <laughs> saying the baby boomers was this giant group of population okay. uh-huh. that skewed schooling. Then it skewed housing. And it's going to skew Social Security it, benefits It's going to skew entitlements. Yep. And what are we doing at the one time we shouldn't be fooling with this? We've just got ourselves into the health care situation. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that while these guys are up there screwing around with the budget ceilings and everything else, as we talked about on show number one back in November 2005, entitlement tsunami wave continues to approach the Poseidon. Okay, so question number nine. A 65-year-old couple retires this year in 2013 how much money will they need to cover medical expenses throughout their retirement a one hundred thousand dollars b one hundred forty thousand dollars c one hundred eighty thousand dollars or d two hundred and twenty thousand dollars now this number will probably shock some of our listeners the answer is d the figure from fidelity investments is actually down eight percent from projections in 2012. So you'll need $220,000 to cover medical expenses throughout your retirement. Now, the re- but the remaining significantly larger than most now this number is is significantly larger than most than most consumers estimate and a fidelity poll of pre-retirees age 55 to 64 found that nearly 48% believe that they will only need $50,000 to pay health care costs in retirement. What's also problematic is that the estimated $220,000 doesn't include the possible cost of over-the-counter medication, most dental services, and long-term care. See, to me, 
this is the largest threat to the baby boomers, and they don't even understand medical it. costs, medical costs, healthcare. And you guys, from time to time, kind of wade into you know what I and your mother have dealt with here for a few years, and that is the cost, current cost of <clears throat> medical care, like a visit to a emergency room, and what that can cost two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred twenty thousand uh, dollars. That number is too low. Whatever that number is, I'd believe eight hundred thousand before I'd believe two hundred thousand. Because the truth is, we don't know what that number is. Well, and we know that medical costs are spiraling way out of control, and the government is doing nothing to get control of them. With that, we're going to take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So in our last segment of this weekend's uh, Money Wise program, want to wrap up. So you think you're ready to retire quiz from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, getting to question 10, what percentage of participants in defined contribution savings plans, that includes 401Ks, contribute the maximum amount allowed each year? A, 5%, B, 15%, C, 25%, or D, 35%. Now, this might be shocking. This the, is easy. Yeah, it actually might not be shocking, I should say. The answer is A, 5%. Only 1 in 20 savings plan participants contribute the maximum amount allowed annually, which is currently $17,500, according to a survey by the Government Accountability Office. A Vanguard study published in June found that only 11% of participants in Vanguard-administered plans saved the maximum in 2012, and only 15% of those eligible took advantage of the catch-up contribution provision, which is an additional $5,500 you can save on top of $17,500 for anyone over the age of 50. So, I mean, number, that's, that's, that's shockingly been, you know, low. Well, well we, have been on, we have been on for a long time talking about low, participa- low participation rates in 401Ks. So you compound been, low participation with low contribution well, on low, top low, of that. Yeah, and you, when you add those two together... Then you're. Then it's very easy to see how someone, how we have, what was it, thirty some odd, thirty six percent of fifty five uh, folks over fifty five years of age having reported saving less than ten thousand dollars. That's right. So if you have a four hundred one k plan available to you as an employee, participate. Question number eleven of the quiz. A household age 65 is living on one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and now three percent inflation. How much money would that household need at age 75 and at age 85? And I could answer that question, Jeff. At age 75, with 3% inflation, you would need $161,000. And at age 85, you would need $217,000. And this is a topic that we've talked about on this show time and time again, how many investors are not paying attention to monetary inflation while they're continuing to accept extremely low returns 
in this low interest rate environment by having high allocations to fixed income in their portfolios that that's right and that inflation is eroding purchasing power let me put it in a simpler way $5000 grocery bill today would cost over $9000 in 20 years and i used to use also that car example what your 67 fastback cost Versus what the average cost uh, of a car? Thirty-six hundred dollars. Yeah. What is the average cost of a Mustang today? Well over thirty thousand dollars. That's inflation. Uh, question number twelve: What percentage of households age sixty-five through seventy-four carry housing debt and credit card debt? The answer is forty-one percent carry housing debt, and thirty-two percent carry credit card debt. Now, this housing figure is from 2010 and is up from 25% in 1992, says the Employee Benefit Research Institute, and the credit card figure is unchanged over that period. The median value of mortgage debt for a household age 65 to 74 in 2010 was $70,000, according to AARP, and that is up from $15,400 in 1989. Question number 13 from the quiz. What percentage of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor who is paid through either fees or commission? Now, the the four options we have are A, 13%, B, 23%, C, 33%, or D, 43%. Now, the answer is B. Only 23% of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor. And of those... 41% said they followed most of the advice. About a quarter said they followed all of it. The other quarter said they followed some of it. And if you're not just looking to get advice and actually looking to get professional management, the one thing that we always try to teach on the Money Wise program is that if you do not want to be making the day-to-day investment decisions on your retirement nesting, you need to find a competent and experienced registered investment advisor that's completely fee-based, that will be able to take that discretionary control, that will be sitting on that wall to be making the day-to-day decisions with your retirement nest egg. So to summarize from this entire quiz, um, it's a lot of great information. Uh, Hopefully it's information that is a wake-up call for some people. Uh, if you're a, long, a younger, longer, if you're a younger listener to the Money Wise program, hopefully this provided you some education and maybe motivated yeah. you to get on the ball to, as we've always said on this program, to pay yourself first. But if you're in your 50s and you're part of that 36% that have saved less than $10,000, don't think that it, you're completely hopeless to retire. You have time. You have to start yeah. saving. You have to start investing. Retirement saving is not a race. It's a marathon. That's right. And those who have you know, a lot more time to run that marathon are going to be the ones that, that are, I think, in, in the end, are going to have a much better retirement and, and be much more comfortable now that's not to say for those for those of us that are list that are listening to our show that might be in that thirty six percent that have saved less than ten thousand dollars. It's never too late to get started. It's never too late to get motivated. It's never too late to train for for that marathon. I, I, I like is time, that. Is time is time on your side? Well, you know you you've time is what it is. It is what it is, as they say. But that doesn't mean you just give up. Sit on your hands and, and not at least make the effort to 
participate in that 401k that you have at, have at work and increase your contributions. Or if you've been to a many, like we, we continue to see many investors that have been sitting on the sidelines when it comes to not having, participating, not participating in, the, in the stock side of the market, not having some of their portfolio invested in stocks, still sitting in cash, still sitting in high allocations to fixed income. It's never too late to, to start to make a change. And, and, you know, retirement planning would be extremely easy if all of us were given a piece of paper the day we were born that said the day that we were going to be leaving this earth. Retirement planning would be very, very easy. Unfortunately, none of us know when our last day on this earth is going to be. And so the best thing to do is to be prepared and to plan. That's absolutely the key, and pay yourself first, and constantly be thinking about that prize, kind of like Jeff said, that marathon. There's a finish line at the end of that marathon. It's a long race, but you will eventually get to that finish line, and so you have to prepare and plan and for so it. And so if you're not sure where you're at in your marathon, if you think you need to be saving more, if you're not if you're not sure what you own in, 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 in retirement, if you want to get a... a, a and look at your retirement plan and see if am I invested in the right securities? You know, give give us a call at Davidson Capital Management. We'll be happy to do a free portfolio review and analysis. Okay. And you can reach us at nine zero six zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father John and my brother Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend and to your financial health. We will talk to you next week.